So if uh, you don't know me and my background, uh, I played competitive volleyball in college. And my wife played also in high school. And both of us have coached at various levels along the way. And uh, when you coach, you kind of take people where they're at with their abilities. And you're trying to help them just learn how to do some basic things, first of all, the basic mechanics. First of all, which is just passing the ball or bumping. You're making contact on your forearms, trying to direct the ball to a specific spot. The next skill is setting, where you push the ball up with your hands coming out clean, and you're putting the ball in a place where one of your teammates can spike or attack the ball, hit the ball. Those are the things you're trying to teach. And of course, it all starts with the service, the ball coming over the net. So those are the things, the basic, you know, fundamental mechanics that a coach is trying to teach or improve or help a a team, you know, become proficient at. You also install an offense and a defense, how you're going to run your team. There are a couple different systems, and I don't want to explain that today, but one of which is you pass the ball to the center, the center sets the ball to one of the teammates, and they spike the ball, okay? But there are a few other things that you need to instill in your team as well in order for them to be successful, and those are things that are kind of mindsets or just things that you need to do, one of which is to communicate on the team. you got six people on your team. The ball's going to come over. It might be dropping between me and you. Who's going to get that ball? You need to talk. Say, I've got it, or your ball, or what have you. Ball number two always goes to the center unless they say help. And if you, if you don't hear them say help, you better get out of their way because they're coming at Mach 5 to get that ball. And they will knock you over to get it. Okay? So you have to communicate. Another thing you need that uh, I try to instill in players is know where you are on the court, okay? If, if I am one foot from the back line and the ball is coming to me at my chest height, I should, from over the, over the net from the other team, I should open up and let the ball go out rather than trying to take it, okay? Because I just need, it's all just geometry. It's all angles, right? Get out of the way. Another thing I try to instill in a player is um, to follow your, your teammate off the court if they're going for a ball, okay? One of the things I love about volleyball is it's a never-say-die sport, okay? As long as you can pop that ball up and get it over in three hits, you're still alive. The clock has nothing to do with it. So you've got someone chasing the ball out of the court trying to get the ball. Now everyone can stand and watch and see them put that person pop the ball up, but if nobody's there to get it and knock it over the net, then that effort is in vain. And that person's not going to do that the next time. So you need to follow them in order that if they knock the ball up, you can put the ball over the net. And last of all, and this is what I call knowing what time it is, okay? In volleyball, you, there's a, a point now scored on every rally. It used to be only during serving, but now it's not on every rally, right? And so you play to 25. If your opponent, you have the serve, but your opponent has game point at, at 24, you need to serve the ball in. Okay, you may have a, a killer jump serve that goes in 50% of the time. That is not acceptable. I need to know the ball is going to go in. 
on the other side, and then they'll make, make them beat you. Don't beat yourself. And I see this all the time on so many levels, even on the high school, even in the international level of volleyball. You know, know what time it is, know when you need to get the ball over the net. These are mindsets that translate into successful volleyball. So, what does this have to do with following Jesus? You see, there are similar principles in following Jesus if you're going to be his disciple. Now say when you first put your faith in Jesus, you don't know a whole lot, right? You, you know that he died for you. You know that putting your faith in him, you're forgiven of your sin. There's some things you need to learn. Learn how to read this book. There's a lot of information in here. You have to make, how do you make sense of that, okay? You have to learn how to pray because God is a personal God that wants to talk to you. In fact, he answers our prayers. He responds. You have to learn how to share your faith. Hey, it's good news. Putting your faith in Jesus Christ changes not only your eternal destiny, it changes who you are right now. That's good news you can share with others. Because until they put their faith in Jesus, they're going to a destructive eternity. There are other things you might need to learn. Like your spiritual gifts. How has God wired you? How does he want to use you in his body? Okay, those are all things you need to learn. But there are also some attitudes. Some things that you need to put in your heart, in your mind, and how that are going to be essential if you're going to follow Jesus effectively. And this is what Jesus wants to share with us today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Luke chapter 17. And this is Jesus sharing with his disciples. So this is the first 10 verses of Luke chapter 17. So if you want to read along with me, it's on the back of the screen, or you can read in your Bibles. But Jesus said to his disciples... Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So, watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, Forgive them, even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you... Also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. So let me pray for us, and then we'll get into what Jesus has to say to us about being 
effective disciples. Lord Jesus, I, I admit, when we first look at this, it seems like these statements are not connected. But they are. And they're connected in, in helping us follow you. So Lord, would you open the eyes of our heart today? Would you give us grace to respond to you and the things that you're telling us, even as you told your disciples in those early days? And Lord, when you come, we want to be found faithful, serving you and ushering in the kingdom of God, because you give us the privilege to do that. So Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen. So this is the Gospel of Luke. Kind of in the big story, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He's going to give his life on the cross, and he's going to be risen from the dead. But he's kind of giving his last, famous last words, both to his disciples and his enemies. The last few weeks we've been hearing Jesus talk to the Pharisees. Again, they're a group that believe that they're the kind of the gold standard of, of spirituality. They're people that are convinced of their own self-righteousness. And Jesus exposes them. He exposes them for their love of money over God and others. He exposes them for perverting marriage and divorce. And divorce. He, he exposes them for keeping up appearances and valuing the things really that this world values. And the truth is they were deceived and they were a roadblock to people who were trying to enter the kingdom of God. This is what Jesus is bringing. Now Jesus turns his words back to his, his own followers because he wants them to hear. He wants them to be sure that they don't become a roadblock. He wants them to be effective. So I guess the first principle that he brings forward is what I call don't trip up people. Don't trip up people. Let me read this again, these first four verses. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times a day, and seven times they come back and say, I repent, you must forgive them. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it is your responsibility to be his witness. To, uh, to tell others about him. To tell others about his kingdom. You're trying to help people come into relationship with him. You're to be his representative, his ambassador. And what you do reflects upon him for good or for the negative. And what Jesus is, is urging his disciples not to do is to become the negative. One who causes people to stumble. These little ones that Jesus talks about. But to it causes them from stumble from believing or following Jesus in his kingdom. Now, little ones could certainly refer to children, and Jesus is actually going to address this a little bit later in this gospel. But more specifically, it's the poor, 
the disenfranchised, the diseased, the outcasts, those that society had excluded from the kingdom of God, that good religious people, the, the Pharisees, if you will, ex- have excluded from the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God really looks to include. And to cause one to stumble is to lead one, another person, astray or to disbelieve or discount the kingdom of God. So how does that happen? <laughs> Unfortunately, we've got way too many contemporary examples, Right? Sometimes it's just plain hypocrisy. You're saying one thing, but you're doing something completely different. That hasn't changed your life one bit, has it? That becomes a stumbling block to someone you're trying to witness to and tell them the difference that Jesus makes. Some of it is false teaching, right? It's telling them the opposite of what's true. Or Maybe just changing it just a little. Oftentimes, we're telling people what they want to hear. As the Apostle Paul would call it, itching ears. Sometimes it's moral superiority. It's, well, I hope you can attain the status that I have before God. It's a person saying, you need to be good like me. By the way, that's a false teaching right there. Because the scripture says that all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. And so that's a false gospel there. Yes, indeed, God is a perfectly moral being, a perfect God. But we can't reach him by trying to be perfect. It's what Jesus has done. Because he came and lived a life we couldn't live, paid a price we couldn't pay, and conquered a foe we couldn't conquer. Sometimes it's just a person that God has called, but somehow they've lost perspective. And they're using their position of leadership as a place of manipulation, a place of abuse, a place to build their own kingdom, their own brand, if you will. I hate to say it, but this last summer I had a chance to go back to Chicago. And two major pastors who had a huge influence, I believe, on the Chicago area and and I would say the church world, both of them, their lifestyles did things that hurt the reputation of Christ. And God had used them. I think somewhere along the way they lost their way. They felt like they were above reproach. They felt like They were the Lord's anointed, and no one could challenge them. Unfortunately, it just gives the kingdom a black eye. Other areas, no transformation. Yeah, I I put my faith in Jesus, but I'm no different than anyone else. Or reluctance. You, You say you're a Christian, why aren't you willing to tell me what you believe? If it's that good news, why can't you tell me? Many things can become stumbling blocks, okay? And Jesus is saying the stakes are high, folks. They're eternal. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. This is a big old, huge millstone. 
That there's no way if it's tied on you, you're going to be able to outswim it. You're going to be poor, pulled to the bottom. But Jesus is saying, it'd be better that you're dead than if you're leaving, leading someone astray. I don't know about you, but those are pretty sobering words. Those are pretty sobering words. And it causes me, it should cause us who follow Jesus to ask, how am I representing the kingdom of God? How am I representing Jesus? But here's the truth also on the other side of the coin. (laughs) You and I are in the process of becoming like Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, but we're going to drop the ball somewhere along the way, aren't we? There's going to be a moment where we're going to represent him in a less than manner. You see, the Christian community is a fallible community. (laughs) If you come to a church and you find that there are, are people who fall short and are sinners, well, yes, that's the reality. God is still at work and in process in us. We are a fallible community, but we should not be a false community. We should still be saying, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And so Jesus says, so watch yourselves. If your brother or your sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day, seven t- and they seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. We're supposed to be in a community where we're all trying to follow Jesus together. And there are going to be moments where I drop the ball, or you drop the ball. And we're supposed to have a relationship where we can have accountability with each other. Where I might even be able to, to rebuke you, correct you, or you rebuke me, or correct me. Say, hey, this isn't what our Lord Jesus taught us. This isn't what the Scripture says. And what happens? <laughs> well, you know, We lose sight of the big picture. Sometimes we get distracted by other things. Our lives are busy. Sometimes we're hurt. We're angry. We start acting out on that. We're doing a bad job of representing the kingdom. We need to get back on track. And we need somebody within the body to say, Hey, brother, hey, sister. This isn't how Jesus would have you live. This is not how Jesus would have you act. It's a two-way street. And practically, I I ask this question. I'd like you to ask this question to yourself. Who do you have a relationship with in the body who you can rebuke and who could rebuke you back and you'd receive it? Receive it not as an attempt to have one-upsmanship over your brother or your sister, but because they love you, because as Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. They're a person that can say, I love you, and you're blowing it. You're putting a black eye on Jesus. 
and it's hurting your own life. Who are you willing to receive that from? Who do you have a relationship that you can do that with? It's not one-upsmanship. It's always repentance and restoration. See, Jesus has called us into relationship with himself, and he's called us into relationship with his body. I need the Jesus in you. You need the Jesus in me. That's how he wants to address that. That's how he wants to, us to keep us from becoming people who cause other people to stumble. That's why we have life together groups. That's why we have accountability groups, men's and women's ministries and opportunities there, relationships within the body. How can I encourage you, even if it's rebuking you? How can you encourage me, even if it's rebuking me? That's what Jesus is calling us into. Don't be a person that trips up people. Seven times a day, (laughs) I repent, says in verse 4. That means that there's no limit to the repentance and restoration. I can continually come to you, and because of Jesus, you can forgive me. You can continually come to me, and because of Jesus, I can forgive you. So, essential number one is being a person does not trip up people. Number two, to be a follower of Jesus is to unleash unearthly power. The apostle said to the Lord Jesus, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to the mul- this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. <laughs> kind of an interesting picture here, isn't it? His disciples basically are saying, Jesus, would you back up the truck and just pour a whole bunch of faith in us so we're just so confident, we have no doubt that you're going to answer us every moment. We're just going to be, you know, just these confident, on-fire people. And Jesus says, you know, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, I think I've got a picture of it here. Look at that. It's the size of a pebble, right? If it's that big, (laughs) you can say to this mulberry tree, get up and go be planted in the sea and it's going to obey you. You know, the thing about a mustard seed is it starts out small and it grows into something huge. Jesus talked about that in chapter 13. And the thing about a mulberry tree itself is this. It plant, it makes, there's a picture of it. It makes this yummy fruit. It's kind of like a blackberry. But the thing about a, a mulberry tree is it has a very extensive root system. It roots itself all over in the ground. In fact, the rabbis of that time were very impressed with it because it was very intricate. And in the Mishnah, which was kind of a, handbook for living the Jewish life, it says, talks about not planting a mulberry tree no closer than 75 yards from a well or a cistern. Because it would make, if it planted any closer, its roots would find it and find itself invading your water source. Here's the point. 
once a mulberry tree is very mature, it's really hard to get rid of it. Its roots are so intricate. But the effectiveness of faith is not ultimately in the size of your confidence or belief. That's not it. Faith in faith is not going to bring about the results. A friend of mine that I grew up with named Jeff Mazzarello, he tells the story of when he was a kid, he watched Superman on television and believed that he could do that himself. He could fly. And so he got a sheet, tied it around his neck. Fortunately, it was a one-story house. And he jumped off with all faith, believing he could fly. That didn't work out so well for Jeff. But he's got a testimony. See, faith and faith is not what does it. It is the object of your faith. That is the living God and His Messiah that He is bringing the kingdom of God to the hearts of men and women. Again, remember, this is the context of Jesus talking to His disciples. He's saying, guys, I'm bringing you along for what I'm trying to accomplish. You're part of that process. Convinced that He wants to use you and accomplish what seems to be impossible with the abilities of men and women. All the power comes from God, who is the king of the universe, who dwells within every believer. He comes to dwell within you. So we are able to do these things, to move forward in these things, because he is able. Not because we're great in ourselves. He's gifted us so much. No, he wants to use us, work in us and through us. Think about this. If you just know the Bible story, right? Jesus leaves this earth. He leaves 11 apostles. Judas killed himself. 120 disciples, and they're in the upper room. And Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're, we're just this group of followers, Jesus. But they're in the upper room praying, and the Holy Spirit descends upon them. And it changes everything. Even with the opposition of the Jewish religious leaders. Even with the opposition ultimately of the mighty Roman Empire. The gospel will spread like wildfire throughout in the next 40 years. And it has changed all of world history. The Roman Empire no longer exists. Nor does the temple sacrificial system. But the kingdom of God does. Mustard seed faith. Because of a mighty God. Now Bob told us this story. A young college man, Jesus grabs a hold of him. He says, i got to tell my friends. He starts telling them in the marketplace. More and more people start listening. Gathering a bigger crowd. Bigger and bigger. All to the point where the government gets involved. So, hey, 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 you gotta stop. Where are your credentials, Bob? You haven't gone to seminary. You don't have a Bible degree. But what Bob had was the call of the Lord on his life. And so he's faithful. And it spreads to not only this marketplace, but another marketplace, and another place, and from one fellowship to another. Well, now you've got, what, is it 98 churches, as you said, 
This is international movement. This is not just in Congo. It's throughout Africa, and I believe even in Europe, and even in Rochester with your own church. So it is spread. It's not because Bob is a great man, and I love Bob. It's because he serves a great God. Mustard seed faith. Mustard seed faith. So follower of Jesus, when you sense that God is calling you to do something, whether your heart is pounding with excitement or whether it's a faint pulse, and you're just going, okay, God, I know you've called me to do this. I don't see how. I don't know how. But I know that you're behind it. To do what only can be explained by the hand of the mighty God. Reaching in and uprooting a mulberry tree. The mulberry tree of sin and death in the hearts of men and women and replacing it with the mustard seed plant of the kingdom of God. Whether that's in an individual ministry or even in your own family. I know many of you are concerned about children who are not following the Lord. Keep praying for them. Keep looking to the Lord to do in them what you cannot do, what only He can do. And folks, you may feel small, you may feel weak, you may feel underqualified, but the question is, who has called you? Who has called you? And know that we have a God who chooses the foolish, the weak, to show His power, to accomplish His purposes, and to shame the wise. The cover verse on your bulletin is out of Zechariah 4.6 to a man named Zerubbabel which says he's commanded to rebuild the temple. And, and God is telling him, look, it's not going to be by your might. It's not going to be by your power. It's going to be by my Holy Spirit, says the Lord. That is the mustard seed faith that each disciple needs to have in order to be effective. Last essential or necessity is keeping a servant's perspective. Look at verses 7 through 10. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down and eat. Won't he say rather, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you are told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. Now maybe this illustration may seem repugnant to us in the United States because of our history with slavery, okay? And it was a little different in the first century. But I wanted to say this. It still remains. If you were a servant, there is still a Lord and a Master. And your job is to do the bidding of that master. It's your duty. That is your job. Even if there's another job after that. The expectation should not be that if you obey, some source of special treatment or reward should come just because you merely did your job. Here's the transfer. If you are a follower of Jesus... He's your Lord. He's your master. If Jesus is, if I'm following Jesus, He is my Lord. He's my master. That needs to be your mindset. 
That needs to be your attitude. That needs to be your perspective. And when he calls us to do something, it can't be, well, Jesus, what's in it for me? It can't be, uh, how will I benefit? No, I'm your servant. Yes, Lord, I will do that. It's like when I tell my daughter Madison to empty the dishwasher. She doesn't come to me and say, well, Dad, how much are you going to pay me for that? It's like, no. You're going to empty the dishwasher because you're part of our family. That's what you're contributing. That is part of being this and part of this family. The problem is, I think a lot of Christians are convinced somehow within their hearts that if I obey Jesus, then he owes me something. He owes me some sort of blessing. In fact, I'm following Jesus because I want him to make my dreams come true. I want him to build my kingdom. I want him to build my brand. And that's not what Jesus came to do. He certainly came to give you life. He certainly gave give it to the full, but it's not what you think. He's called you into his kingdom to serve that kingdom and to serve him. And it will require hard work and it will require sacrifice. And it will be costly. But as long as we're on this side of heaven, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are serving him. He's the one who calls the shots. The Apostle Paul, in many of his letters, says, I am the Lord's bondservant. I'm his slave, literally. That's what the word doulos means. You know what's interesting? Is that even our Lord Jesus, he came to be a servant himself. He was in very nature God, folks. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a slave, of a servant. And made himself, having been made in human likeness, he became found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus would save himself. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you serve, you're being like your Lord Jesus, by the way. And so there are benefits, benefits of being his servant. And what I'm going to read is going to seem like the opposite of that. But bear with me here, listen to me. This is what Jesus says in verse 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say we are unworthy servants and we've only done our duty. (laughs) That doesn't do so well for the self-esteem club, does not I'm only an unworthy servant. And it's true, folks. You and I are an unworthy servant. You know why? Because before Jesus found us, we were building our own kingdom, we were doing our own thing, and we were on a pathway to destruction. And Jesus reached down and drew us to himself and made us his. And gave us a new purpose. He made us his servants, servants of the living God. He made us his forever. In fact, he made us his children. And he uses us for his redemptive purposes. And it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And there might not be much reward here, as much as we'd like. 
But when he comes, we do receive reward. How many of you have been in the book of Philemon lately? <laughs> Good, Eric, I like that. It's only, it's only a one-chapter book. Verse 11 says this, talking about Onesimus, who's a runaway slave, who didn't know Jesus from a guy named Philemon, who's a believer. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about him. He says, Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become both useful to you and me both. See, Onesimus puts his faith in Christ. And it changes his perspective. And he goes from a useless, selfish servant to one who becomes useful for both the kingdom and brothers in the kingdom. You see, when you are a servant of the Lord, you become useful. And he uses you for his redemptive purposes. I tell you what, there's nothing more that brings me more privilege when I see somebody grow in Christ or have their eyes open or taking to themselves the truth of the gospel. And you know what? It may have taken a lot of energy to get there. You Awana workers, I bless your name. You may have had to put up with a lot of stuff. But when you have the privilege to help kids hide the word of God in their hearts, when you have the privilege of seeing them come to Christ, man, that's what being a servant is about. You middle school workers... You're walking kids through a very awkward time. But when you have the privilege to see them put their faith in Christ, what a privilege. You parents, you're putting up with a lot of stuff. <laughs> it makes, reminds us of the stuff our parents put up with, by the way. But when you see your children take steps towards the Lord, that's amazing. When you get to serve Him like that, And the truth of the matter is, is on this side of heaven, we are going to be his servants. But when his kingdom comes, and the kingdom is fully realized, our gracious Lord will turn around and serve us once more. This is what Jesus said earlier in, the, in chapter 12, talking about his return. It will be good for those servants who, whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself and serve, and have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Probably Jesus dressing us in his righteousness fully. Folks, if you're going to serve Jesus effectively, these are the necessities you need to have, the attitudes you need to have. Don't trip up people from entering the kingdom of God. We represent him. And sometimes we need to hear a rebuke from a brother or a sister. Or we need to give one. We need to un unleash unearthly power. Remember, it is not dependent upon you. It is dependent upon God and His work within us. Choose to have mustard seed faith in what He wants to do in you and through you. And keep a servant's perspective. You may be treated like a servant at moments by others. You may get resentful, but remember, you're serving the King of Kings. And when you do so, it's a privilege. And ultimately, he turns around and serves us. That's what's going to make us effective, folks. That's what Jesus is trying to speak to us.
So, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come and close us. And we're going to sing a song we actually sang last week. But I believe it really should be our heart as we look for Jesus to use us for his kingdom. So let me pray, and then I'll have the worship team close us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're gracious and tell us what we need to know. So guard us, Lord, keep us from being a stumbling block to people entering the kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you give us mustard seed faith, confidence in what you want to do in us and through us. And I pray, Father, that you will give us the heart of a servant. That when you say, as we sang early, earlier, it will be my joy to say, your will, your way. Do that in us and make us your effective disciples. Lord Jesus, in your precious name, I pray these things. Amen.